0: So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Geld actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, m as restricted stocks, various investments, and more. You can keep your hard earned money our their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster so again you know if you're interested on in this go to joingelt.com uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy so again you know join All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Dealmaker Show. So today we have a a serial entrepreneur, you know, those founders that I call tier zero founders because they're hard to come across. You know, they're hard to come across and they're one of a kind. You know, those that really have been through the whole full cycle, you know, building, scaling, financing. You know, in this case, uh, our founder, the first company that he did, Bootstrapped the whole thing, you know, sold it for over a hundred million, and now he's a, in a rocket ship—a rocket ship that has raised over seven hundred million—and we're gonna really get into it. But again, you know, you're gonna find his journey, his story, quite inspiring. So, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Eric Stillman. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thank you very much for having me.
0: So, originally born in Startup Nation, so they're in Israel. So, give us a little uh, walk through memory lane. How was life growing up?
1: Where was amazing, Israel, you know, I was born in 1980. So Israel in the 80s was a completely different country from what it is today, much more simpler before the high-tech boom, before a lot of different things that changed the country in the late 1990s. You know, the end of the 90s, the big startup nation, high-tech things started to emerge. I remember the first days when high-tech companies started to pop up like mushrooms after the rain and it actually created this itch on my side also at the end of the 90s to start my own company one day. Uh, and I did it way too long. I started in 2002, right after I was released from the military, uh, and actually seeing, you know, this entire high-tech boom going from mushrooms to a huge forest, you know, full of uh, everything that you want to see around you.
0: Now, the military, you know, is quite the uh, quite the program and quite the training that you guys have there in Israel, because, you know, I'm sure that that gave you, you know, a different lens, a different perspective on things, you know, from the Prior Eric to the post Eric after that experience, how how would you say that you came out of that?
1: So one of the important things to understand about the Israeli military is that you get in as 18 year old kid. A lot of people at the age of 18 they go to college. They have you know these uh, drinking parties and uh, and they have four years of going to college in Israel. It's a little bit the opposite. Right at the age of 18, you go to military, and a lot of a lot of the people go into combat. Uh, and you get out of the military at the age of 21 or 22 and then you go to university so the reality is that you have to turn from a kid into a man or a woman like an overnight thing from the age of 18 and it really shapes you to the adult that you are because you understand what is responsibility what is actually important in life and also you understand that like when you need to go to school or when you need to build a company or need to job like how important it is and you know what type of level of focus you need to put into it because you've already done similar things while you've been in the army for three years.
0: So then after you were in the army for, for three years, you know, then, you know, you, you come out of there and then I'm sure that you were like wondering, you know, like what I want to do next. What's the next chapter? So how was that process of uh, discovery for you to really understand what was going to be next for you?
1: So it was a bit funny because, uh, you know, I came out of the military and my parents wanted me to go to university. My father was a professor here in in the local university. So I registered for school. But after one semester, I understood that university is not for me. And I dropped out of university after my semester when my parents keep telling me that, you know, if I'm not going to finish school, I'm going to be a failure and I'm going to be a bum and I'm going to live in a carton box uh, in the street corner. Uh, But then very quickly, I decided to start my own company, and I started the company in the beginning of uh, 2002 uh, and built it for 10 years as a bootstrap startup and ended up selling it for above $100 million in 2013.
0: And I mean, not a uh, not a bad way to uh, tell them that perhaps you know, going you know, getting out of school was not a bad idea after all. Now, now in this case, what were you guys doing with IT Navigator? What was the uh, what was the deal there? So
1: it was it, it's a bit of a a journey because when we started the company in the beginning of two thousand and two, you know, cloud computing didn't exist. So we built a company that the goal of the company was to create what we call unified management for uh, contact centers and unified communication equipment. Back in that days. Cisco, Avaya, and these type of companies controlled the world with their own unified communication equipment. So, you know, It was uh, IP phones, uh, switches, routers, and stuff like that. And we created this unified management software that replaced the black screens and telnet and stuff like this that people used to use with a very nice UI. But it was what we call an on-premise software. So people actually bought software from us. Uh, at around 2008, 2009, cloud computing kicked in and the entire SaaS model started to be very popular. And then we migrated this platform into a SaaS play, and that really allowed the company to scale and sell globally. And then it turned into a SaaS company that sold in 2013 to Avaya.
0: And uh, and and for this journey, I mean, you guys were there pushing it for about 11 years or so. And uh, your role also changed, you know, over time. I, I guess I, as as the company was growing, and and also you were transforming yourself. You know, like how was that? you know, journey of going from, you know, obviously co-founding the thing, you know, and just like being, you know, like uh, there in the trenches, you know, like wearing multiple hats to all of a sudden you go more on the marketing business development side, and then, you know, more on the corporate side as as the chairman of the business.
1: So it allowed me actually to learn everything about a business. So at the beginning, I was focused on the tech and, and a lot of things that are super technical and into the details and product oriented. Then I had to get involved with marketing, sales, finance, and a lot of other things because the company was small. It went, you know, from 50 up to 50, 60, 70, and et cetera. So, you know, over the years, I touched literally every single job that somebody needs to do in a company, including, by the way, cleaning the office, because we didn't have money in the early days of cleaning the office. So I used to come on Fridays to clean the office together with my co-founders. Uh, And it really allowed me to understand how a business needs to be ran and what type of KPIs and things you need to look at at different types of positions, you know, in a company. And it really prepared me to running a company in a much bigger scale like I do today, because when I have a conversation with anyone of my uh, VPs or department leads, I actually can understand, you know, what they're measuring and what they're looking at on a day-to-day basis.
0: So talk to us about metrics, then. You know, like what you understood about metrics, because obviously now you know you've raised money for Rapid, and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But with IT Navigator, I mean, basically it was fully bootstrapped, and the problem with being bootstrapped is that any step in the wrong direction could be lethal because you don't have that extra oxygen to kind of like pivot things around. So, what did you guys learn about you know metrics and how to keep your eye on the ball? So we
1: learned something that uh, people, again, learned in 2022, that profitability matters. So when you're running a bootstrap company, you take only profitable business. Like You do not have an option to take something that is not profitable and spend money on things that do not generate immediate revenue. And I think that one of the main things that we learned is to call the bullshit very early on You know, products that you want to build or services that you want to give that are not making money and you're spending more money. from the money that that you actually need to make. Uh, So, you know, gross margins, profitability and stuff like this, even though we didn't measure it this way back in the days, we just wanted to see how much money we have in the bank, how much cash we gained month over month. And that basically lets to be super profitability focused and very laser focused on what things actually will move the needle without taking any risk. Because like you said, any mistake and your business is dead. One of, your ve- one of your clients is late in paying an invoice, you might not be able to pay a salary. So all these things led us to manage a business for 10 years in a very, very accurate and measured way. So when later on, when we came into Rapid and, you know, where we raised capital, we also implemented a lot of these methods in the early days of Rapid.
0: Now, then in this case, you know, like with, with IT Navigator, I know it was quite a funny story on how the acquisition came about. Because, I mean, after 11, after 11 years, you know, I'm sure it was not easy to, to say, hey, you know what, you know, like maybe we're going we're gonna to go through, a, through this transaction. So how did that come about?
1: So the, the story was following. We, we were very involved in the unified communication and contact center market for 10 years. And we started to see the beginning of Twilio as a new company that emerged, that started to provide this, you know, API capabilities and Amazon started to come into this business and basically cloud computing started to become a thing for IP, telephony and contact center, you know, up until 2010, it was nothing like it was everything on premise. And we started to see it coming and we understood that, that the market that we're selling to the type of companies that we're selling to, this market is going to crash in a three year time frame, uh, And that was something that we saw in 2010. So we said, okay, we need to hit the eject button. Like if you're, you're a pilot in a plane and you see the plane crashing, you don't want to crash with the plane. You want to either land it or you want to hit the eject button. So we were looking for a way to basically eject from the business before it crashes. And the business was continuing to grow like year over year basis, but we already saw the cliff. It was clear that at a certain stage, it would go down and it would go down very aggressively. So we were looking for a buyer and we were talking you know, to all the typical suspects, but nobody wanted to give us the end time and one one time in 2011 it was late 2011 we went to a conference in madrid and uh, this conference is huge it had like 8000 people uh, and there was a gala dinner uh, and i got delayed to the gala dinner i got stuck in the hotel i got late i got to the gala dinner late and basically my seat was taken so the stewardess in the event told me listen i'm sorry your seat is taken i will take you to another table she took me to another table i sat down in the table and the guy next to me says Hello, nice to meet you. I'm the chief product officer of Avaya. What's your name? Oh
0: my God. Wow. And,
1: and that's basically, I said, oh, you're the guy that I've been looking for for the last several years. He said, what do you guys do? I told him, listen, we do this, this, and that. And he said, oh my God, you guys do that? Tomorrow, 6 a.m. in the morning, I want a demo. And the next day, 6 a.m. in the morning, I met the guy in the lobby of the hotel showing him a demo. And from there, everything took off.
0: My God! So then, obviously, out of all places, Madrid. You know, I'm a little bit biased because I was raised in Madrid, so beautiful city. But, uh, but, but, I guess you know when you guys did the demo, you know, like what? How how does an acquisition like this really really develop and 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 starts to take form?
1: It took a year and a half, right? Acquisitions typically are not uh, do not happen overnight. So it started with the demo. He was very impressed from the demo. From there, we basically. Build a, an OEM relationship where we started to sell the product under the brand of Avaya. It uh, this thing or took also like eight ten months. Then they started to sell it to their install base under their own brand, but it was our product, so we built this tight relationship with them. And after another year, that we saw they saw that the sales are picking up and they're selling quite a lot of it. They made a clear decision that it's better to buy them than to pay them the royalties. And this is how. The deal went through. So it took overall between a year and a half to two years to to complete this thing and to end from that initial accidental meeting, you know, in in the Madrid Gala dinner.
0: So then finally, you know, the acquisition happens, you know, over a hundred million. I mean, that's a lot of money, especially if it's fully bootstrapped where you don't have to, like, give proceeds to, to investors from that. I mean, anything that you did, you know, that you were hoping that you would do one day that finally, you know, like you had, you know, a little bit of money to do or no?
1: Ah, I bought cars. Like the first thing that I wanted to do always, it was to buy cars. Uh, it was, you know, the, the story is when you're young and you're starting the company, you always have the dreams about buying fast cars, taking private jets, going on a yacht, buying a big house, but all this blah, blah. So you, this checklist was checked very quickly you know, <laughs> after the acquisition, including with some other things that were checked that are not allowed to say, you know, on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, that's, that was the first thing that we've done. But then very quickly, we settled down because we understood that we can spend this money very quickly. Uh, and, you know, we, we we need to to basically still uh, do something with our lives.
0: Hey, guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that You need traction, you need to grow, you need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves just like 1x.tech with their advanced androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors, so really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They are also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the deal makers audience: is one year domain for ten dollars and a five year domain for fifty dollars. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash dealmakers. And that is, again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers. So go get your own domain. So then, and, and obviously, as they say, you know, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So then let's talk about what happened next, because I'm sure that, you know, you guys did the integration and all of that stuff. And then, you know, it's a time, you know, to, to think about what's next. So. What was that thought process like and how did the idea of Rapid come knocking? So
1: actually, it's interesting. After we got acquired, uh, we we had to spend uh, two years with the company that acquired us to basically do this integration process, hand over the company, the team, the product, and et cetera. And it was the two most miserable years of my life. It was like, I really hated this time. It's like you sold your baby. You don't own it anymore. Other people tell you what to do. And a lot of times you don't agree with what they say. They don't want to listen to you because they think that they acquired the company. So now they know better. Uh, And it was a very hard time, especially with the fact that every day, the amount of emails and questions that you get is going down like day after day after day after day. And I remember at a certain stage after a year and a half, I had no emails and it put me into a panic mode. Like I used to be 500 emails a day, phone calls, 24 hours a day, clients, uh, employees, and et cetera. Mm. And I went all the way to zero. Nobody talks to me. Except of you know friends that are talking to me in the office. And I started to think, okay, I need to do something different. But it took me six months uh, to, to understand that it's mandatory for me to quickly do something different because my brain started to get into this maintenance mode. Like I was not doing anything, I was not able to think about new things. Everything became so slow. And then me and, and a couple of other co-founders, we went on a trip. And as part of the trip, we went to, to Eastern Europe, to the Czech Republic. And then, you know, as part of the trip. We were constantly uh, getting annoyed from the fact that we were charged very high FX fees. Like every, everywhere we paid FX, huge fees, we came back, we sat in the office, and we were talking about it, and then we said, okay, let's try to understand why the hell do we pay so much FX fees? Why does money cost so much money? And we started to sketch it up on the whiteboard, and from there, it turned into an idea, okay, so maybe we need to build a company that will try to you know, to reduce the cost of FX. And then we started basically Rapid, but under a different name. The name of the company back then was Cash Dash. And the goal of the initial company that we started was to create this consumer-facing e-wallet that saves foreign exchange fees for travelers. That was the original idea. And this is how we started the company. And this is what we actually did for the first year from end of 2015 until beginning of 2017. We were building a consumer-facing product. And in this process... We basically went through every single problem that exists on planet Earth that is related to financial services. We had to get regulated. We needed compliance teams. We needed legal teams. We needed to to get special bank accounts for custodian money. We had to integrate to a lot of different banks, a lot of other institutions, do KYC, KYB, all these crazy things that you don't even think about. Suddenly, they're mandatory. And then, you know, one day we're sitting and we, we said, listen, it cannot be that there are no platforms that allow you plug and play to do this thing, that every single company that wants to build this needs to build all this infrastructure from the beginning because it is equivalent of going and building your own data center. Nobody does it. Like people go to Amazon, Google Compute Cloud, Microsoft Azure. Nobody's building a data center, but we were actually building a data center for financial services. So we decided to pivot the company into an infrastructure play because we we thought it's going to be much more valuable. And then we changed the company name from CashDash to Rapid. And from there, it completely took off all the way that what Rapid is today.
0: So for the people that are listening to really get it, you know, what ended up being the business model of Rapid? How do you guys make money today?
1: So Rapid is what we call a fintech as a service company, a company that basically provides an infrastructure for other companies to build on top of us financial services. We have four main products, payment collection, disbursements of funds issuing of cards and storing money in custodian accounts in fifty five different currencies, which is at the end of the day is a type of a virtual bank account. And basically these capabilities are wrapped uh, with an API that allows developers to build on top of us different type of use cases. We're a type of a unique company in this space because we are not only providing the tech capabilities, but we also do the money movement and we're fully regulated. So when you want to build some kind of an offering on top of us, doesn't matter if it is a checkout page on Shopify, or you're trying to build a new bank, you can actually plug into our API and leverage our capabilities to do it. And we do it in 106 countries across the globe.
0: And now, obviously, you know, you're in this rocket ship, but uh, you know, the seat round, you guys were a little stuck. So how oh, did you okay. unstuck the whole thing? Why, why, why were you guys stuck? We were stuck
1: because we were not able to do two things. A, we were not able to articulate in one sentence, like I will say to you in a minute, what do we do? And second thing is that all the investors that we talk to told us that we were lacking focus because we came in and we said, okay, we want to build this infrastructure that is completely global, that we allow companies to collect money, disperse money. It will do. It will be some kind of a network play. It will have a white label PayPal. So people told us, A, we don't understand what you're talking about. And B, why are you trying to build something global? Go first to one country, the US, the UK, the EU, whatever. Pick one country and implement it. And we tried to explain to people from the get-go you don't understand if you don't build it in multiple countries from day one, it's not going to be scalable. Nobody will need you only for one country. People always need to build stuff that is multi-region, multi-country, or whatever it is. <clears throat> and we were very, you know, we were we were stuck. We raised only $3 million at the beginning and invested several millions of our own money. Uh, and nobody was able to understand what do we do. Up until one time, we came back from another uh, exhausting meeting with a VC. And I told my co-founder, I do not understand what these people don't get. We're doing something like Amazon AWS, but for the fintech space. And that was the tagline that changed completely the history of the company because the next time we went into a meeting and people asked us, what do we do? We said, we're the Amazon AWS of the fintech space. And then everybody said, whoa, okay, I get it. So it's an infrastructure for financial services and it's global and it's robust and it's scalable. And from there, $3 3 million up until that sentence another 767 million something like that after this sentence because really the ability to articulate what do you do in early stage is super important for fundraising
0: and also you know while you were stuck i'm sure that uh, you experienced the two biggest bullshit phrases that you get typically from vcs you know what are those
1: it's very interesting it's number 1 <laughs> and the second one is i'm going to talk to my partners and i will come back to you so when you, hear, when you hear these two sentences from a VC, it means no, 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 and no, and you're never going to get money from us.
0: That's incredible. Now, now you were alluding to it. I mean, you guys have raised over $700 million. I mean, that's a lot of money. So uh, why did you guys raise so much money, and what has been the journey of going through all these different rounds?
1: So everything around round has its own thing, right? The first round was seed $3 million. Then we went into a $10 million round to scale the business. Then we got another 40 million to scale the business. Uh, and then we got another 100 million to, because you need to cover more and more countries. Like every single country you want to go to requires the effort from a product, business, dev, engineering, and a lot of other things. And of course, you want to grow sales. And then came in basically the need to start doing acquisitions because we believed that the company needs to do acquisitions in order to scale faster. So we raised another two big rounds uh, of $300 million, uh, that were almost back-to-back in order to do acquisitions. And up until today, we deployed uh, almost half of the money into acquisitions. There are still more acquisitions that we're planning to do. So basically, the big chunk of the money was re- really, really responsible for the acquisition strategy that we have.
0: And also, when it comes to acquisitions, most acquisitions fail, really, because of integration. So how do you guys think about integration to make sure that you don't have that? So
1: we did three, three uh, acquisitions. Two of them are super successful. One of them is okay plus. But in all of them, we were able to do a very good acquisition because we have only one criteria for an acquired company. And at the end of the day, how fast can we throw the tech into the uh, toilet and switch it with our own tech? If we cannot switch it to our own tech in less than nine months, we're not interested because we're not buying technology. We have our own tech stack. We don't believe that we need a third-party tech stack to do any one of the things that we need to do. And basically, the main criteria in any due diligence that we do is how fast can we switch the tech. And I think that because this was the criteria and this is what we were focused on, we were able to do quite good uh, integrations as part of the a
0: process. And what about people? You know, because one thing is to, you know, obviously throw the tech in and, you know, throw the other, you know, legacy tech out. But how do you go about people too? So
1: the most important thing is the management team, right? You want to know that the management team that is part of an acquisition is is people that will stick around and will provide you added value. I think if you're you're interested in buying a company that everybody wants to hit the eject button and disappear the next day, you're never going to do the deal because you cannot do the integration and everything that is related to it on your own. All the acquisitions that we've done, we were able to keep the management teams up until today. They're as part of Rapid and they have different types of roles inside the company. And then of course, When you start going down in the chain, you need mid-level management is good. But from my perspective, the top management is the most important thing as part of
0: an acquisition. That's amazing. Now, I guess for the people that are listening, you know, to really get it, you know, how big is Rapid today, you know, in terms of maybe like number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing?
1: So Rapid is a company with around 850 employees, operates in 106 markets, has offices in 12 different countries, has a revenue In 2022, of about 300 million dollars, and continue to scale uh, in a very high space.
0: And you were you were alluding to the different offices that you guys have, and you know, as we're talking about the topic of people, how do you guys go about culture? Because when you have all these different offices, too, you know, like every office to certain degree has its own culture. So how how does that translate to rapid?
1: So it's it's very hard uh, to to manage it. So we have a slogan in the company. That actually is accompanied with a T-shirt that everybody has. That is called One Rapid, uh, and it is something that we started to do right after the acquisitions because it's very important. After you, you have all these cultures, all these offices, all these acquisitions. You need to merge somehow everybody under the same roof into the same goal. So One Rapid is basically our internal program to uh, explain to people from different offices and different cultures how do you work with people from other offices and other cultures, and it actually goes down all the way to how do you write an email? Because for example, for Israelis, when they write an email, it's quick and dirty and sometimes it looks very, you know, offensive. But on the other hand, you know, uh, when you're on the other side and you receive this email, you need to understand what actually the person meant when they sent it to you. So we have, you know, Israelis, we have Singaporeans, we have Americans, we have Europeans. It's a mix and we're trying constantly to allow people to, to get educated. How do you work with other cultures? And it works quite well. Yes, there are still once in a while, you know, all these different types of uh, fights between, you know, different offices, different types of cultures. But I think that, you know, if you're comparing it to 2018, which was the year where we started to have these offices globally, it really, the, the chart is going down very fast and, you know, we're managing it quite well.
0: So let's say you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Rapid is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: it's a world that basically embedded finance is inside almost any product that you use not only inside your phone as google pay or apple pay but everywhere that you go any inside your television inside your car any device that you use any brand that you communicate with doesn't matter if it is uber for ride hailing or it's zara for for buying you know something all of them they basically have embedded financial services inside their consumer offerings, because this is the world that we believe that everybody is going to. Everybody at the end of the day wants to monetize their consumer base with financial services because they understand there is stickiness and loyalty behind it. And this is a big opportunity for all the big brands. And this is why you see everybody, one way or another, going into this type of consumer-facing or business-facing financial services offering, even though they're not financial services companies.
0: And how, how far away we are from from getting there, Arik?
1: I think we're five years away. Uh, you know, we've seen the big brands doing it. You've seen it with Apple. You've seen it with Google. You've seen it with Amazon. You've seen it with Uber in some countries where they, with their wallet. You've seen it with Samsung. You see it with some buy now, pay later products that some of the big brands are offering. I think that we're pretty much five years away from this uh, seamless financial embedded financial services uh, vision.
0: So we're talking about the future here. So I want to talk about the past, but being able to do so with a less of reflection. Imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to perhaps that moment that you were coming out of the army and you were wondering, you know, what to do next. Um, and let's say you're able to sit down, that younger self, maybe that younger self that was a little bit down because you had dropped out of school and you had your parents, you know, like, like saying, hey, what the hell are you doing with your life? And I'm sure that those were not easy days. But let's say you were able to sit down with that younger self and you're able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: So two advices, which I took with me from the previous business into Rapid. First advice, always invest in marketing. Like a lot of times when you're building a company, you think that, okay, marketing is the less important thing and you need to invest in product, tech, sales, but you forget the marketing piece because you don't have money and you think that it's not important enough. I think that investing in marketing, early days, building a brand, especially around brand, not really like online acquisition of clients. But even when you're very small, you need to start building your brand because brand awareness reduces significantly the friction and reduces the customer acquisition. And second thing is raise money from investors. Even if you think that you want to do a bootstrap, still find a way to raise some money from investors because when you're going to sell the company or you're going to exit it, at the end of the day, you need some kind of a watermark that says this is the minimum price of the company. And the price cannot be, we are bootstrap, we want 100 million. Like if an investor came in and put a price tag of 200, then the buyer knows they need to buy to pay more than 200. So raising money at the right time to create this external watermark, which is not coming from the founders, is very important uh, if you're building a bootstrap, which is not common, but it's, it's another important thing.
0: I mean, obviously, I I think it makes total sense that outside validation. You know, I think that uh, going back now, perhaps to IT network, do you think that would have been helpful to push the price a little bit up?
1: Oh, it would have been 5x more expensive. Like this is the number, like we've done two mistakes, the marketing piece and the investors. If we would have done both of them, we would have sold 5x more.
0: Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, live and learn, Eric. Eh? Without a doubt, what you guys are doing now is unbelievable. And I'm, and I'm very much looking forward to what, to what happens next. So I guess, eh, Eric, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: Reach out say hi, LinkedIn.
0: There you go. Easy enough. Well, hey, Eric, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I had a great time.